Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand. Mm. And it is perfect. Okay. It's a rainy, rainy Monday. So if you hear rain in the background, um, that would be why you might hear a little bit of buzz. But we do have a Q&A for Monday. And this is a really cool question because it, it, it's one of those things that uh, a lot of people don't don't think about. And it involves working with the, the, the younger folk, with, with the, the young athletes and, uh, and the little kids. And so Nate comes with a question. It says, I work a lot with athletes in the age group of 11 to 25. And I was curious if you think ISA compensations take time to manifest and therefore hard to detect in younger or prepubescent people. No. So here's the deal. So the rules don't change, right? Structure dictates what their capabilities will be. With the younger crowd though, what you have is an individual that is probably a little bit more adaptable as a general rule. So, so not always, but, but a lot of the times. And so you have this broad spectrum of, of capabilities um, and then you're, you have this broad uh, capacity for adaptability um, which means that their their performances aren't like spectacular at, at either end of the spectrum, but that also makes them more adaptable. And so they're a little bit more changeable. And so they may not rely on a singular strategy for performance. Now, if you look at this thing as a normal curve situation, though, you do have some extremes. And so these are the kids that tend to perform really, really well under certain circumstances. And they do use they do use compensatory strategies. And, and that's one of the reasons why they stand out. So if you have a kid that runs faster than everybody else, jumps higher than everybody else, throws harder than everybody else, he is using some form of strategy that allows him that, that high level of, of force production. Now, because of his age, he might be a little bit more adaptable. And so while he performs exceptionally well, he may be a little less adaptable in other things. And so this might be one of the reasons why we see some of the, the uh, injuries like we, we see in youth sports is you take a kid that is somewhat biased towards um, being really, really good at something. So let's let's pick on baseball pitching because it's really easy to do in, in, in youth pitching especially. So he's really good at force production. He has lesser adaptability overall than, than, than everyone else um, in, in comparison that allows him to stand out as a, as a thrower. And then you superimpose a bunch of training on top of that. So lots and lots of throwing, lots and lots of specificity. And then you slowly take away all the other adaptability that he does have and then bango, you get an injury because now he's no longer adaptable. So that's what the excessive throwing would do. Um, so, so Nate, I don't think that you're dealing with a situation that is any different, but because of the, the changeability of these kids, because they're not fully grown yet in, in many of the cases, they're going to change over time. So the strategies that they will use will change over time. So the kids that stand up really, really early probably use their, their, their structure is a little less changeable, a little less adaptable, but maybe a little skewed more, more towards first production. And then your later adapters, their structure changes over time and then allows them to finally demonstrate those capabilities. So that might be one of those, those early adapter versus late adapter things. Um, Nate has a follow-up here. He says, as a follow-up question, um, do you feel it would be smart to expose young or inexperienced athletes to the entire spectrum of the propulsive arc uh, so they don't slip too far into inhale or exhale strategies? So um, I don't use that term propulsive arc, Nate. Um, I do know what you mean by it. Um, but it, so one of the things that you want to do do with the kids is is take advantage of some of their adaptability, um, so we don't have the the extreme situation where we might have some of those early onset injuries, and and so yeah, of course you want to expose them to a broad spectrum of activities. If you're if you're doing so, they're getting exposed to every element uh, of propulsion stuff. They're throwing and running and kicking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We definitely want to do that. But one of the things that you that we need to understand about that this broad scope application of activities for, for use is we're trying to figure out what they're actually really, really good at. So at some point in time, they are going to achieve an age of specialization, which tends to be associated with some of the, 
the structure after puberty where they're going to start to approach some of their adult height, adult physical structures that allows them to stand out in certain certain ways and then they can move towards um, their, their specialty under the, those circumstances. But prior to that, we want to take advantage of some of that adaptability as well and just to be protective um, more than anything else. There are always going to be kids that are going to stand out early and they're going to develop and some of them will, will continue to rise under those circumstances, some of them will, will actually decline over time. Um, the, the goal is to, to keep the, the youngins healthy, if you will, and the way you'll do that is by this broad spectrum of exposure, even though they might stand out under certain circumstances. But I think that's how we're gonna, we're gonna try to address this the best that we can. But we're always using those strategies, especially when you see standout performances because that's why they're standout performances is because they do have the capacity to use these compensatory strategies to their advantage. And that goes for any sport, it goes for any level of activity. Um, anybody that stands out in anything means that they are able to superimpose something on top of what they are and take advantage of their physical structures. And, and so we're gonna see that no matter what age, just that kids change over time. Um, they tend to be a little bit more adaptable, like I said. And, and so that's why, again, we don't need to change the, the rules. The rules are the same. Um, just take into consideration what the kids are bringing to the table that, that some of the older kids or the adults don't have. So hopefully, Nate, that answers your question. Um, if you if you uh, was too confusing because I did ramble a little bit on that one, um, please let me know. And then I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday, I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, very busy day, big clinic day today. Um, so, so we got to dive right into the to the Q and A. I've had a couple people with with some similar questions, um, but I, I I picked one out um, from Eli as as the winner, so to speak, for today's Q and A. Eli. Uh, states, he says, I'm having a bit of a shoulder issue. When I press overhead, either with a dumbbell, barbell, or kettlebell, I get a pinching in my shoulder. But when I reach overhead, I don't seem to get it at all. Is there something that I can do for this? Yes, I think so. So here's one of the cool things about this, this question. We have to distinguish between a reach overhead and a press overhead. So even though they appear to occur in the same space, the mechanics of getting there are going to be different, which is why um, I think that you're you're feeling different things. So with your reach overhead, you appear to have enough extra rotation in the shoulder to finish the reach, uh, which means that you've got expansion on the back side of the of the upper back as you're reaching overhead. When you press overhead, the strategy is different. So anytime we produce force, we're going to use a compressive, exhalation-based, internally rotate internally rotated-based strategy. And so if you're feeling the pain with, with the press overhead, chances are you're not able to capture that end position. Whereas when you just reach overhead, you do capture the position fairly well, okay? Because the space that needs to open for the reach overhead is where you actually have to create compression when you press overhead. So as you overhead press, and you'll see this on any number of people, you can do is observe it in the gym. If they do a one arm press at a time, they tend to move away from, from the implement and they, they keep their palm facing forward and they actually turn their body away or they lean away or they, they perform some strategy that allows them to get that position overhead because they have to capture the internal rotation because again, it's an exhalation based, internally rotation based propulsive strategy against load. When I just reach, I just expand and I get my arm up overhead. So, most likely, Eli, here's what you're going to need to do. You're going to actually have to develop some anterior expansion that's going to allow you to finish your presses overhead in the internally, internally rotated position without too much compression. So here's what you're going to do. If you look back at a couple of my videos, I've got a series of, of, of arm bars and, and such that we can start with using, using kettlebells in the gym so we don't have to do anything unusual here. You can actually build this into your training. So start with the supine arm bar. I just did one. Um, for a bench press lockout, and you're gonna actually gonna use that strategy to recapture some internal rotation 
at the shoulder. So it's going to be an exhalation-based strategy as you internally rotate the kettlebell. So you're doing a supine screwdriver where you're going to turn inward and exhale. Then you turn that into the to the rolling version of the arm bar. So you're going to roll away from the kettlebell. Um, and again, do the screwdriver with the internal rotation, external rotation, exhaling on the internal rotation to, to start to develop the, the pump handle action, okay? Now, that's not an overhead position of the arm. So now we're gonna take a standing activity. So we're gonna use a kettlebell windmill um, to actually help you recapture the overhead position, but here's what I need you to be able to do. The kettlebell windmill is gonna move you from an externally rotated to an internally rotated position overhead because of the load in your hands, but I need you to respect the end range. Don't force the end range. It will come over time and with, with repetition, but using that sequence of building you from, from sort of the ground up to recapture this expansive position on the front side of the rib cage, so getting your sternum to move when you breathe, Right? and timing your, your sequences appropriately, you're gonna develop the ability to inhale and exhale anteriorly, which will support your press overhead and allow you to maintain the range of motion that you're going to need to avoid the impingement at the top. So let's back up a little bit and review a little bit. So shoulder flexion, just reaching overhead requires that you have external rotation of the shoulder to finish true shoulder flexion. That's a posterior expansion, that's dorsal rostral expansion. A press is a compressive strategy of that same area that requires internal rotation to finish at the top. Um, one of the dead giveaways that you'll see, people that press with barbells, because you're fixed in pronation and it's gonna drive the internal rotation approximately from hand to shoulder, you'll see them push their thorax forward as they finish the press overhead. So it's really common to see in the, in the, the jerk portion of a clean and jerk or for people that just press overhead in a standing position, you'll see them shift their entire body under the load. And what they're doing is they're pushing the thorax forward to compress the upper back so that the shoulders can internally rotate and, and finish the press. This is also one of the, the reasons why it's difficult for a lot of uh, power lifters to make transitions into uh, strongman with the overhead pressing because uh, of the limitations in, in shoulder range of motion that are associated with a really, really big bench press make it very, very difficult to press uh, directly overhead. So Eli, I hope that helps. Um, remember, it's going supine armbar, rolling armbar to kettlebell windmill. It's going to be your sequence as your, your gym fix for this shoulder thingy. I hope that helps. Everybody have a great Tuesday. I'll see you guys later. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. So we got to cut to the chase on the Q&A here. Um, I do want to remind you though that tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, is the uh, Coffee and Coaches conference call. So prepare your coffee, throw up a video, tag me for it on Instagram, um, and, I, and I'll share that. And then we can all hang out together on Zoom and we'll have a great conversation as we always do on Thursday mornings, 6 a.m. Eastern time. That's Bill Standard time, if you will. Um, so I appreciate you being there and participating. Let's dive into this question. Maybe the world's simplest question, but one of the coolest things to, to think about because it's gonna allow us to explain a lot about movement in general. And so um, it's about squatting. So I got, my, I got my Batman leg day shirt on that I got from my buddy Flick because how appropriate, right? We're talking about squatting, leg day, get it? All right, here we go. So Mihail, uh, could you please explain how the mechanics change between a body weight squat and a weighted squat? Um, so it appears that there would be a lot of differences. And, and I think from an appearances standpoint, you're probably right. But what we have to look at here is we have to look at movement principles. So the principles don't change at all. They're exactly the same. What we have are different conditions and then therefore different contributions of strategies that are going to be applied in, when, we're, when we're dealing with something that is just body weight and then something that has the, the magnified or, or uh, amplified load, right? So we think about how we move through space. So we have two strategies. We have expansion and we have compression and the interaction of those so that you're always doing both at the same time. Just certain aspects will be biased towards one and certain aspects will be biased towards another. And so if we think about a, a body weight squat, I have to maintain my center of gravity, I have to expand in the right place, I have to compress in the right place to achieve a position in space. 
And so with the weighted squat, the same thing happens. It's just that now I have taken all of the loading base forces. We haven't talked about loading in a long time. We talk about compression all the time. But when we talk about loading, those are the forces that we have to manage. And so when it, with a weighted squat of any kind, um, we have to manage now those forces as well. So our strategy may change. So real simple, let's look at a back squat and a front squat real quick when we talk about loaded squats. So they're both loaded, but they're not the same. And so by the position of the load, I have to create expansion differently. So if I put a bar on somebody's, on the back of somebody's shoulders, right behind their neck, and I create the compressive strategy on the back side of, of the upper back, I have to drive more expansion anteriorly, otherwise I would collapse the load. So I fill myself with volume, I compress that volume to make it stiff, and then I can rest a lot of weight on top of that. Okay, if I was in a front squat, I have to get enough distribution anteriorly and posteriorly underneath the weight. So from a shape change perspective, I have to expand myself so that the bar is sitting relatively in the middle of the expansion. Otherwise, I would dump the weight forward if I did not expand anteriorly. But I also have to create a yielding strategy posteriorly to create expansion. So again, I have the weight centered relatively over this this. Um, cylinder, if you will, of, of volume that I am squeezing. So again, the shapes are different, but the strategies are the same. It's just this interaction between the compression and the expansion. If I'm sitting down into a, a, a deep squat of any kind, I have to have some form of expansive strategy to lower me into that position. If I'm looking at just a body weight squat, I have my weight based on, on the effects of gravity upon me that will allow my expansion downward in that direction. So I have to expand downward to allow that to occur. So I have to have eccentric orientation in certain areas and I have to have yielding strategies in certain areas to allow that expansion to occur. If I superimpose a weight on top of that, so now I took a barbell and I put it on your back, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have less of an eccentric orientation as a contribution to the expansion and more of a yielding strategy. So I'm going to distribute that load into the connective tissues on a much, much greater level because if I release the, the muscles into eccentric orientation, I will accelerate into the ground, which might be okay if I have the capacity to get back out of it based on the load. However, if I put 800 pounds on my back and I accelerate into the ground, I could just become a big wet spot, which would be a bad thing. So Again, we have to look at this from, from compression and expansive strategies. So the shape of my body is going to be, be based on what the demands are. So if I put a load on me, I have to expand and distribute the, the shape of my body to support the load. I have to squeeze that load. And again, that's going to create a restriction in movement. So think about it, it's like I wanna be more stable underneath a heavy load, so I'm gonna use a much more compressive strategy. But I need to be able to move through, through, the, through space to create my squat, which is going to be more of a, an expansive strategy. So under those circumstances, heavy loads, I yield a little bit more, less loads, I, I eccentrically orient a little bit more, but I'm still using both expansive strategies at the same time. To come up out of the squat, it's all about, about compression. So if, I'm, if I am um, pushing up out of the, the body weight squat, I don't have the force demands that I might have under other circumstances. I use my, my concentric overcoming strategy to come up out of the squat. So I will move more towards an eccentric orientation to a concentric orientation. When I'm in a loaded situation, I don't release the concentric strategy nearly as much. And that's why I have to use the yielding strategy to get me into the bottom of that squat position. Otherwise, I may not be able to stand back up. So I hang on to my compressive strategy. I hang on to more concentric orientation, even as I lower myself into the squat so I can overcome and push myself up out of a loaded squat. So, so conceptually, I hope that's a little bit helpful for you to kind of understand how these interactions take place. Because I, I think that, that some of the biomechanical models are, are a little bit rigid, if you will, in regards to how these things actually occur. When the reality is, if we look at this thing from two strategies, compression and expansion, it's just an interaction of the two. How do I utilize that? So eccentric orientation yielding to expand, concentric orientation overcoming to, to compress, and that's literally how you're gonna move through space. So this squatting thing is a great representation of how those things interact. Hope that's useful. If it's confusing, ask questions.
questions. Love the questions coming in. Um, I had to move this one to the front though. It was such a cool little question. I hope you have a great Wednesday. Um, tomorrow's chips and salsa day and coaches, uh, uh, coffee and coaches conference call. So I hope to see you guys there and I'll see you guys. And it is Thursday, 6 a.m. Welcome to Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Jim Ferris is on the call driving to his client, I'm assuming. And uh, workout first. Oh, okay. Are you swimming? No, I put my rowing machine in the back seat. <laughs> You know, they have, you have those like pop up like dance things. I just pull my rower out somewhere and start rowing. Sweet. Bill, you saw Terry yesterday? I did. How's he, he doing? Some, he kicked some booty. Did he? Yeah. As always. So he walked in. If anybody doesn't know, like go on Instagram and, and you'll see like pictures of the Terry Project. And it's a little background. So Terry's a, a, a guy that I've known for. Well, since I passed open, which was almost 12 years ago. And um, Terry's got like, you know, hip replacements and knee replacements and, and, but he's a golf instructor and a tango dancer. And so he, he purchased a program that everybody knows about um, that is designed to improve your posture. Um, and, and, under and, and other things like they promise many many things in regards to to the outcome of their program so he purchased this program and terry is the guy that that works diligently like if you ever ask him to do something he will do it tenfold and so he committed himself to this program and was incredibly successful to such a degree that it did the exact opposite of what he wanted it to do right so he comes in with this hunchback kind of posture and massive kind of forward headish kind of a thing and just a whole bunch of muscle activity that he didn't want. And, um, Campo was, was student at the time. And so he got, he got the, uh, the, the first step. So he saw him from, from the get go and uh, saw the changes, like this evolution, like literally it looks like evolution. If you put all the pictures together, which is pretty cool. But anyway, so, so Terry's been on his own for about a month. Um, apologize for the dog thing. He's very excited. Uh, and so uh, um, we always measure him as we would a, a regular patient. And, and so he was missing maybe five, 10 degrees of, of internal rotation yesterday. And that's it. Like he came in almost clean as it was. Yeah, it was pretty good. That's he, awesome. He, yeah, he came in pretty clean. And then I tweaked, like I turned, I turned his statics into dynamics. And then you saw the after picture. Like that was literally him moving through space rather than doing anything static that's so and, great yeah so so i'm gonna let him go for a couple months and then we'll just follow up but 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 it, it, again it, it's worth the look just to see the changes in the pictures if you go through my instagram account there's a whole bunch of them spread out and you can kind of see the evolution like literally the 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 changes so when people talk about posture and things like that i don't look at it from a static perspective although in this representation they are static photos but um it's been pretty cool to see and, and it is we did the exact opposite would be what you would perceive based on what terry was doing um and and much more successful in outcome what were some of the final uh activities that you were doing with them so i so i took so so terry was doing a lot of the pnf diagonals and things like that um and, and literally I just turned him into dynamic activity. So he's, he's, he's now, you know, D2s, he's doing a bilateral. So he's uh, doing disco. One D2 extensions and stuff like that. So, um, like I said, just took everything that, that we've done statically, positionally, and then superimposed uh, uh, the breathing on top of that. So exhale on exertions, inhale on recoveries and um, again, it's it's not it's not about anything um, special per se. It's just doing the right thing at the right time, versus making these blind assumptions that everybody's going to need, have the same needs. And like I said, Terry being so compliant, you know, he's like the dream client. 
that you, you, anything you ask him to do, he'll do. Continuing on from the question last week about dorsal rostral breathing, um, you said you were comparing it to a dented car fender and just, you know, like Correct. reaching from the inside and, and poking it out using air. Yes, sir. So is that just literally how it sounds where you kind of get a little uh, protraction, thoracic flexion, and then just start breathing? So generally speaking, yes. I'm not a, I'm not a huge, one second, I've got to do something really important here. Have a good day. I didn't have to kiss the gorgeous one. Um, generally speaking, you, you have the right idea, okay? Now, we don't want to think about this as just a, a pure protraction, which would not be a, which would not be representative of, of a position of the scapula for breathing purposes, right? So, so the scap moves through this, this four-dimensional movement as you, as you move airflow, right? So depending on what position you're in, right, with, with your extremity, it, it's going to determine what, what strategy you're going to be using in the dorsal rostral area to create expansion. So, so if we want the dorsal rostral to expand, I can, I can put the scapula into a position of inhalation or I could put it in a position of exhalation and yielding. So, so the, the two strategies are not the same, but they both create expansion under different circumstances. So we have to consider the, the desired outcome, right? So, so randomly wanting dorsal rostral expansion is all fine and wonderful, but we typically wanna have a purpose to it, right? So if there's an extremity motion that we're trying to recapture, that expansion becomes very, very important. Right, so, so anytime that we have an external rotation limitation, we'll just use the shoulder since we're talking about dorsal rostral. Anytime we have an external rotation limitation, the dorsal rostral area tends to be compressed, right? So it's the dented fender, if you will. And that limits external rotation because what it does is it changes the orientation of the scapula relative to the humerus which changes the, the concentric, the eccentric orientation of the musculature around the shoulder, and then it creates that external rotation limitation, okay? And so again, depending on what the, out, the desired outcome is going to be, we determine, you know, by extremity position, what type of an expansion that we're going to get, whether we actually move muscles into an orientation where they're, they're eccentrically oriented, whether they're at length, or whether they're concentrically oriented, creating a compressive strategy, right? Or we want that to yield and allow that to expand while those muscles are still concentrically oriented. And so again, we have to make a decision as to, as to what the intent is, okay? I got it, thanks. Because Bill. each of those are purposeful, right? It just depends on what the needs are. Got it, right. thanks, Bill. Because um, when we do it to different positions, we have different outcomes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, the other question, to actually, um, I was uh, trying to help a buddy of mine. Um, he lives across the country in, uh, in Atlanta. Oh, actually, he's in Chicago right now. But uh, we were in just a Zoom call, and he was talking about how he has pain um, with like in this neck uh, shoulder area after prolonged sitting uh -huh. and so this was um just due to his job you know he's sitting a lot and kind of like reaching forward and like sense. taking notes a lot yeah and um when he so i was just wondering if you could help me through my thought process here um i realized when if he were to come in i would you know do a range of motion assessment which i was able to do but then um, he gets pain after like prolonged sitting or in that same posture. So it wasn't something I could replicate at the time. And right. so um, some of the objective measures that I thought I kind of needed, like I would have done MMT or something. What? Uh, I would have done like tested his muscle strength. What, what, why? Well, I mean, so I would have figured that it's more of an endurance issue because- Endurance issue? Right, because, or if he's just in that same static position for a long time, okay. so kind of getting stuck. Um, 
or his muscles are fatiguing after too long. So that's just kind of the thought process I was going through. And I didn't know what... What muscles would you want to check that would be useful to, to have an understanding of? I mean, just from like the my limited understanding, it's just the stuff we learned from school and it would be like mid-trap strength or like deep neck flexor, you know. Um, but that's why I kind of was wanted to pick your brain on this a little bit because I realized that objectively I didn't have a solid um, baseline of what, what I wanted to check, you know, because I couldn't replicate the symptoms. Okay, so, so what you, here's the best that you can do, okay, is you want to have all movement options available to you. So if he is static, right, and then becomes uncomfortable. Have you ever sat on a hard chair for a really long time? Right, right. And actually, I just got to that part in your book. Okay. So, so, so if you sit on the hard chair long enough, your butt starts to hurt, right? Yes? Yes. Right. Okay. Would you immediately make an assumption that because your butt's hurting and you're sitting on the hard chair that you have butt weakness? Probably not. Okay. So let's take that one off the table. Okay. Why does your butt hurt when you sit on a hard chair for a really long time? Because you've been sitting on it for a long time and there's just pressure buildup. Okay. Okay. And so what are the, what are the consequences of pressure buildup in one spot? I mean, we will get sore in that area. Why? Why does that happen? That's because you're on stop putting pressure. It's, like it's not a hard curve. Okay. Have you ever worked with anybody that was wheelchair bound? Oh uh, yeah, I have. Okay. What do they have to do several times an hour if they're wheelchair bound? They have to do certain things. Otherwise, they get they get a problem down there, right? Right. What's the problem that you're trying to prevent? Uh, pressure injuries, pressure ulcers. Okay. Uh, so you Why want to move them. Why do you get those? Because they're not moving. They're just, they have pressure on, pressure build up on the same spot. Okay, what does the pressure do? Um, why is it bad? I guess I guess just nonstop pressure is bad if because I put enough pressure if I put enough pressure on your throat, uh-huh, what would happen? Well, that would be you would block airways or airflow. Right. You ever uh -huh. watch MMA? Yeah. You ever see a rear naked choke? Sure. You ever see anybody pass out? Of course. Why do they pass out? Because they're not able to breathe. No, it's not the breath. The um, lack of oxygen. Lack of oxygen. They cut off the blood flow, right? Right. Okay. So why is the base of the neck and the upper shoulders any different from anything else? Mm. So, okay. so it's just lack of if blood flow. If it's static and it's not moving, if there's mm. muscle activity in that area, okay, what happens when you contract a muscle hard enough to the blood flow. Sure, it constricts and probably... Exactly, and what are the byproducts of that? It's like the whole consequence, right? So okay. you, get, you get an increase in acidity, right? Um, your type three afferents that, 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 I think it's type three afferents, that, that monitor that area, send signals to the brain, and, and, and the brain says, hey, there's like this weird chemistry thing going on here, that I'm not really sure if it's interesting or not, but I tell you what I'm gonna do. I need you to move a little bit so this, this chemistry thing, so the pH goes back to normal. We get normal blood flow and oxygenation. But what if you can't move? Like what if you're stuck there because of work, right? And then you hold this position over time, right? You see him getting that? Uh-oh, he froze up. That's unfortunate. I was on roll too, man. Anyway. Static positions are no different than anything else, right? There are consequences that are associated with them, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, that we have a weakness problem, right? People make the assumption, it's like, oh, you have pain in an area. Well, I need to pull on it with a stretch, and then I need to strengthen something. And that's, just, that's been, I don't know where this started, but that's sort of been this, 
this this methodology that that people have used, you know, in in rehab for the stretch and strengthen crowd, and and again, looking at it from a different perspective, it's like, okay, do you have full movement capabilities in that area? That's really where we need to go first and foremost, because if you have all all those movement options, I have all the muscle positions that I need, I have normal blood flow, so I don't get all the secondary consequences of static positions, pressures, and tensions, right? So a lot of a lot of pain that people are experiencing are merely associated with that. Doesn't mean they're damaged, doesn't mean they have tissue changes, doesn't mean that, that they're, they're broken. Um, it just means that they have too much pressure or tension in one place and they can't alleviate that, right? Which is one of the reasons why, why we do what we do and, and, and why we have the model that we use. Uh, because what that does is it just simply restores movement options. And a lot of good things happen when you do that, like I said, when you have normal excursion of muscles, that means that I can, I can reduce blood flow, I can increase blood flow, um, I, can, I can alleviate pressures and tensions that might be identified by the system as something that's, that's salient or dangerous. Based on your description, you, you have about four different models floating through your head, right? So you mentioned like four different, literally four different perspectives yeah. on what you're dealing with, right? Um, and, and so, so what you're going to have to do is resolve some of that because there, there are conflicts in, in those models, like in, in certain perspectives, right? So, so some of those are going to have like yanking and pulling exercises and some of those are going to have like, oh, you need to force production or strength. And then some of them are going to be associated with respiration and things like that. And, and so what you're going to have to do is resolve some of that. And you, you need like a, you need like a little bit of a guide, right? You need, you need sort of like a, a mentor because there isn't a book that's going to solve your problems, okay? You need somebody that's got some ex experience that they can offer you um, versus trying to do some book learning, right? Because when we, when we get into the, to the complexity of, of, of how we move, there are some foundational principles that you, you might be able to pull from a text um, that would be useful, okay? But the application of them is experiential and, and to, to take advantage of this. So Mike Camperini, who is on this call, was my former student, okay? And so he understands that now. Like he has been through this situation where, okay, I had all this, this book learning from school and then you put him in, we, we put him in the purple room where he got really uncomfortable for a long time. Right. And so he understands like the value of that experience of miserable failure. Right. And to, for understanding about how this actually works. And so, again, for you to come in and say, like, if you read something in a book or you 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 follow somebody's principle. So you mentioned Yonda stuff. So I'm, I'll pick, up, pick on that. You mentioned Yonda. And and so if you follow those principles, you might have a measure of success. But again, that model has limitations. And then so then you go to the next model and you say, oh, well, I can superpose this on top of that. And then that model has limitations. And so, like I said, you need somebody that can get you um, uh, uh, past a, a, the, the isolated structure of a model, right? And start to see this thing as one big thing. And, and again, there's no book that'll do that for you. Sure, Joey. Yeah, so uh, so I don't know if you, I think you're pretty active on Twitter too. I don't know if you saw the post about the uh, the deconditioned athletes that were coming back from uh, from quarantine. And just like you know, some of them are just so out of shape that they have to they can't start anywhere near where they were before. Anytime you've got a shorter time span to prepare somebody, again, you have to use a little bit more of an intensive method to acquire fitness quickly, right? Um, but then you'd have to monitor. Your, your key performance indicators to make sure that you're not driving them too hard in one direction too quickly. So again, what we would recognize in our model is that we would see people losing ranges of motion. So you have to have some way to identify, it's like, okay, what is their fitness level? So you have to do some testing, right? And to determine, okay, where do we need to go? What is the greatest emphasis that we need to place on them? So the nice thing about professional athletes in general though, that have been at that level for a while, is that they do have, they, they have constructed machinery, right? That lasts for a really long time. So they don't decline as much, right? But there might be like a, a priority in regards to, I don't know, force production or endurance that you can emphasize. And so again, if you're in a short-term situation, the majority of the work that you do will be towards that, that singular 
uh, entity of their of their performance. I, I don't think that, that any one model has all the answers, right? So you take what you can from, from every, it's kind of what we were talking about before. It's like you take whatever you can from any of the other models, right? But understand that every model is limited. Nobody has complete information, right? And so again, you need some way to, to integrate all of those things because everybody tries to speak a little bit different language, even though that we're all talking about the same thing. And so you'll have any number of perspectives, right? So I, 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 I tend to gravitate away from, from a, a singular system, if you will, because of the limitations. Having done that, so, so the mistake that I made was, was doing something like that, right? And, and not allowing myself to see other things. We're only seeing it through a singular lens. So, so the more models that you have, the more lenses that you have, allow you to see so many different things that are influences. And so I encourage you to take whatever you need to from any, any source, but look at it from a much larger perspective and saying, this is not the end all be all answer, no matter what you're studying, because all of them have a limit to what they can do. Socrates was way ahead of his time, right? Did anybody get that joke or just me? Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. So you're a big Keanu Reeves fan then? Uh, yeah, I mean, more so those movies for sure. But yeah. when, when, is the, when is the next Bill and Ted coming out? Do you know? Uh, so a buddy of mine, actually, he's been trying to get into the movie industry for like the last decade. He's been in like some small roles in some movies and he said that they're uh they just announced yesterday i think that they're gonna release it um i think just streaming only oh really but he said that's a good thing because it'll come out earlier so well so is it done yeah it's supposed to come out in theaters i think in august okay yeah i can't wait yeah me neither. <laughs> like, like this is like the ultimate sequel this is this is this is gonna be like the funny thing is is like you know Keanu Reeves is like so rock and roll with, with John Wick, you know? Like he's just killing it with the John Wick movies. Yeah. And then he's gonna come back as, as, as Ted and it's just gonna like destroy yeah. people's, people's perspective that, that don't remember the Bill and Ted stuff, you know? Right, right. yeah, I agree. I cannot for, for people who don't, who are like maybe younger or don't know that, he, it's gonna be, uh, they're gonna think there's something wrong with them or something. Exactly, they're gonna say, why is he ruining his career? He's like, no, this is how he started. I'm just kind of the evolution of, well, I think it's, I don't know if it's evolution of training. I think it's more or less kind of the, the meter's kind of going back in the other direction. Like um, I, I was on another call and we were talking about how, you know, training almost became almost like kind of rehabby, um, where, you know, people were trying to spend a lot of time doing breathing strategies and, you know, they were doing stretching for like 15, 20 minutes. Um, but how have you guys at IFAST kind of evolved over, over time, I think, from a, a training standpoint, like from a coaching standpoint, where, you know, because you guys understand, we have a better understanding, better grasp of training and kind of like inhalation, exhalation strategies, has training become more, hey, we're gonna get these guys moving, um, getting them to kind of moving instead of lying them on the floor. Have you guys seen that with your coaching as well from just more of a training standpoint? Hopefully that question's like, I'm kind of like trying to assemble all of it together, but does that make sense? Yeah, so so let's, I always make the comparison between what we do and, and MMA. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's kind of like, um, if you if you go way back to the first UFCs, right? So when, when Gracie was, was won the, what, three out of the first four, and nobody knew how to defend Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? So all he had to do was get his hands on you and he would eventually choke you out, yep. right? It's kind of the same thing, right? So it was like, um, so somebody obviously that got their butt handed to them by, by Gracie goes, you know, I'm a boxer, but show me how to get out of this position or how to avoid this position. Right. And that's how the mixed martial arts things goes. So then you spend a whole bit. So then everybody latches onto that. Right. So everybody goes, Oh, I got to learn Brazilian Jiu Jitsu to be in an MMA. 
and then the stand-up guys come back and then you get the tie the the the, the tie boxers that come in and now everybody's throwing elbows and knees right so it's just this evolution of stuff that gets superimposed and eventually becomes the mixed version right and so we're the same way and so that you'll notice that there, there'll be like the hot topics right and then everybody goes there and then it gets overemphasized, right? And then it comes back and they go, oh, I don't need to do that. I, it's important and useful. So now we're going back to this model perspective. It's like, okay, you've got all these different models. I got to figure out how I'm going to integrate all that stuff, right? And so, so some of it is going to be through trial and error. Some of it's going to be experience, but some of it is just recognizing how this stuff, how all of their stuff together works. Like what's the commonality? How are these things produced, right? How do we actually behave? And then where does this fit in, right? So rather than looking at, you know, uh, doing rehabish exercises, like there's, there's a good reason to do those things, right? But if you don't understand it to any depth, then you don't know how it integrates into everything else. That's why I'm such a, I, I'm, I'm so much about having a framework to work from, right? So I, we just call it a model, right? Because that's all we have. We, we don't understand the complexity of everything. So we have to have a model. But it's like, is there another way? And so you keep, and again, same conversation I had a minute ago. It's like, what questions are you asking? Okay. So when you put somebody on the ground, why are you putting them on the ground? Do you have a reason? Or are you just doing it because that's what everybody else did, right? And that's usually what happens. And that's, again, I think it's just part of, I think you're right. I think it's just part of the evolution, if you will, where, where but, but again, we, if, we, if we ask more questions about how we do stuff in the first place, which is what I've done for the, like the last five or six years, like rather than saying like, oh, I'm going to use this system and this system and this system, ask the questions like, how do you actually achieve certain things? Now I can say, this will fit into that category. This will fit into that category. And now I have my big, you know, big bowl of stuff that is mixed up rather than saying, boom, 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 right? Which is what everybody, like I said, that's kind of what everybody does is everybody gets excited because everybody wants to do the latest thing. It's any different than it, than it was, but, but again, keep asking the, 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 the right question. Like every time you do something, you better have a why reason for it, right? Every time you get an outcome, try to rationalize why did that happen or why did it not happen? What did I do wrong? Did I pick the wrong exercise? Did I give a bad cue, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it becomes very process oriented, right? But, it, but I think it's always the recognition that no matter what you do, you don't have the answer, you have an answer and there's probably something better, which keeps it exciting, I think. Keeps me interested anyway. Like, like I'm, I'm more interested in what I do now than I've ever been, and I'm almost 30 years in as a, as a PT. And then I, I actually started training people when I was an undergrad. So who, who would want to go to that guy? I don't know, because he was an idiot. But point being is, it's like you just have to accumulate this stuff and recognize that, that it's just a process. Be excellent to each other. Oh, nice call. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Yesterday was Thursday, chips and salsa day. I actually got to sit down in the restaurant. I actually uh, got to see uh, my brother and his wife, actually, which we haven't seen, they haven't seen them in 10 weeks. So it's been a great week. Very busy with a great coach's call yesterday morning at 6 a.m. So don't forget, next week, 6 a.m., join us for that. And let's dive into today's Q&A. It's actually a, a pretty good one. Uh, this comes from Mikhail. Mikhail says, if someone's standing on their left leg and the other leg is uh, flexed with the hip and knee at 90 degrees, um, the standing leg is then excessively externally rotated, abducted, and extended. Why is that? And what should I do with that? This is actually pretty straightforward. So I actually use a test that's very, very similar to this um, in the clinic to help identify some of these things. But let's, let's talk through what we want to see happen under those circumstances first, and then we'll talk about what, what actually does happen. 
So essentially, standing on this this left leg, and we're gonna we're gonna flex the opposite hip there. And so what what Mikhail's describing is as this leg moves into hip flexion, what we should see on the support side is we should see a little bit of internal rotation of that of that left ilium. So we get what looks like a posterior rotation there. But basically it's just securing the position of this of this ilium under those circumstances because when the hip is extended at relative zero for, for standard measurements and 90 degrees here, we have two representations of, of a propulsive strategy which should put this into an exhaled position. So I should have a constant pelvic diaphragm supporting this position. However, what he's describing, so as this opposite hip goes into to hip flexion to 90 degrees, what we're seeing is an externally rotated position of the ilium, which was going to orient this, this femur into external rotation. And so this is somebody that is moving too quickly to an, a, a, on the back end of the propulsive phase. So, so they are in late propulsion too soon. So what we need to do is we need to teach this person how to delay this. So from a strategy perspective, it gets really, really interesting. So you think about some things that you could do. So let's just say we could put them into a left knee down, half kneeling position, but that's the exact same stance position that we just measured. So the chances of being successful under those circumstances are minimal. So what we have to do is we have to establish the exhalation strategy. So we have to get them somewhere to that, that middle propulsive position where they can achieve the concentric pelvic diaphragm, the internally rotated ilium. And so the easiest way to do that actually is to uh, bring the left knee up. And so we're gonna start somewhere with the left hip in a 90 degree position and we're going to teach them how to delay and shift backwards on that left side first so we can capture this middle propulsive strategy. So so from a from an exercise standpoint, this is where like Camperini deadlifts come in really, really handy. Um, the left shift uh, squat strategies, I have a video up there on YouTube on that. Um, try that actually, that's a really good position to be in. Um, the front foot elevated split squat variations that are actually delaying propulsion with the left foot elevated on, on, the, on the box. So that'd be your front foot. And then once you're able to recapture the internal rotation of that left hip, that would be a good sign for you now to switch and try to bring that, that left knee down to the floor into a half kneeling position. Then you start to work on capturing the, a, a really useful propulsive middle uh, middle range strategy of, of that of that half kneeling position. So there's a video on YouTube that actually describes how to capture that as well. So I want to point you in that direction, Mikhail. And then once you do that, once you actually capture that effective left half kneeling position, you've got chops, you've got lifts, you've got presses, you've got pulls, you've got all split squat variations with the right foot lead. Um, and then um, what you can do is you can go back to the original position where you saw the externally rotated hip position where they were driving into early propulsion and use that as your test retest. So there's a lot of things that you can do here, but, but what I would say is the first things first is, one, don't try to use the, the hip in that, in that zero degrees of hip extension strategy. I would move them into the 90 degree position, work there to delay the propulsive phase and then slowly bring um, that, that leg back towards extension. So hopefully that gives you some strategy and some understanding as to what you're actually looking at. Um, thank you, Mikhail, for the, for the question. It was a great question to wrap up the week. I had a great week. Hope you guys did too. I will see you next week. Finish your coffee, grab a workout. Have a great weekend.